Happy New Year to you as we are commencing again um, our study here in the book of Colossians. We're going to wrap up this month of uh, January on uh, this section in the book of Colossians. Then we have another stretch to go, um, which we are developing a sermon series called Excuse You (laughs) and addressing the issues of church and culture. And I believe um, this is very important for us as we engage the world, as we engage our neighbors, as we engage community, and even uh, uh, just relationships uh, within family, um, immediate and uh, distant family. But today's message, and I'm going to offer you a disclaimer, this week was rather interesting in my time of study in preparation of this sermon, as I I have to confess, I I have struggled. And I I don't want to approach this just per se in an academic format. So if I do come across that way, please forgive me. But I really desire and aspire um, that the Lord would use me in such a pragmatic way and how to apply this to our lives so that it's not just a, a textbook reading or an or a intellectual exercise of sorts, if you will, uh, of the mind and, and eloquence. And, because none of that impresses God. It might impress us. It might impress our professors and, and, and different types of environments that we associate with. But in reality, there's something much more powerful that speaks to us through the words and the proclamation of God's truth and his gospel. And so, um, I have entitled this sermon, Pseudo-Christianity, False Teachers. Now, I, I am impressed by, um, sometimes I'll, I'll come home and my wife has this uh, court TV going on the television. And some of you might, you know, say, praise God, she's so much like, I like those programs. But, you know, um, or Dr. G, when she does all those uh, forensic science and whatnot. Or, uh, but some of those shows are, are very interesting because I've never really given so much thought, uh, especially as you're, as you're dealing and addressing uh, falseness or deception or, or just things that aren't, uh, are true, and how much criminals innovate to cheat the system and uh, create this falseness of something that is real. For example, uh, the laundering of money. Right? How much financial institutions spend on understanding what is real so that when something that is not real appears, you're able to pick that up almost second nature. And so this is similar to what Paul is now uh, diving into to the church in Colossae and the believers there and, and, and informing them. After he gave them this beautiful, lengthy prayer that many of you were all like, okay, pastor, I got it. Thankfulness, thankfulness, thankfulness. And the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And, but we want the mysteries of the gospel and we want the, the depths of God's word. And sometimes... We forget that in the gospel there's depth, mystery, revelation that is, that is revealed to us that God had since the foundations, since before the foundations of the world, had ordained. And so it's, 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 it, it falls on us also now, the, the 21st century church and believers, to come back and review and remind ourselves 
of the importance of the gospel and how that should um, kind of like these glasses, right? Give us perspective. And the gospel should inform and it should provide our perspective on life, our perspective on marriage, our perspective on interpersonal relationships. It should inform everything. Now, now that sounds a bit fanatical, Pastor. Well, you think that's fanatical. Wait till you start reading the words that Paul wrote here in our text for consideration this morning. Coming out of the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 that most people would agree this is the Christological centrality of what Paul was, was addressing to the church in Colossae. Verses uh, 15 through 20. And then verses 15 to, through 16, we see not only is God supreme over the created order, the visible, the invisible, but God is also supreme in death and resurrection, which includes redemption for the soul. It's in light of this completed work of Christ and his person in his work that Paul begins to address, even though he doesn't name this falsehood or attack specific groups in particular, he's laying this foundation work for the believer to have a Christocentric ruled view, to have a Christocentric approach to life and relationship, to have a Christocentric view of finances and stewardship, to have a Christocentric view of faith and conviction. And this is important for us. Why? Because then it creates two narratives or two extremes. It's kind of like the writer in the book of Ecclesi Ecclesiastes that says, I've seen a righteous man die in his righteousness, and I've seen a sinner die in his sin. Blessed is the man who can preserve a balance. How do we become and avoid being so rigid by religion and formalities and do's and don'ts and avoid the liberalism and the progression of many who have gone away to the wayside by emotions and sensations. And so these are the extremes that if I can, I want to place in your heart and in your mind as we read the text this morning. Taken from Colossians chapter 2 verses 4 through 8. And we're going to go all the way to 23. And I'll be uh, interjecting there with some verses. But there's three things for the next three Sundays I want, to, I want to set in your mind. And then on the fourth last Sunday of this month, I want to address what true Christianity is all about. But for now, we're going to focus on false teachers. Then we want to uh, focus on mystics. And then we want to also focus on ascetics, those who are legalist. Um, so, for example, here uh, the, the Word of God says this way. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And this is probably the next phrase that you read in this text is probably the take home of this whole sermon here. And not according to Christ. If you like to underline the Bible, that would be a key phrase for you to underline in the whole understanding of this false teachers that, that were permeating, not just in the time of Colossae, but even in our time in the 21st century. And not according to Christ. So, as I wrestled with this text, I began to say, okay, Lord, where do I go? How do I give this, this exposition and faithfulness? Well, here's three things that I took home from the, these texts that I want to share with you very quickly. First, false teachers use deception and polished communication to mislead individuals. Okay? There is deception and there is polished communication that false teachers use to deceive individuals. Now, notice the text again in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may, may delude you with plausible arguments. Again, you go into the original languages here. Delude, falsehood, deception. There, there, there is the intent to cover the truth with some made-up, framed-up narrative here. But then notice the second part of this verse. So the, the intent here is they want to deceive you. Okay? There's a deception there. And that's the intent. But notice how they use it. How, how they approach. Notice the approach here. The tactic that is used by saying plausible arguments. Or in other words, I would call them smooth talkers. What, what grandma would say. Right? Smooth talkers. And, and, and so, you begin to, 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 to ask yourself a question of the text. Well, where did all this start? Well, well, for example, this wasn't something new. You'd have to go back to Old Testament texts. Right? We don't have time to go throughout the whole Old Testament. But we're, we're going to pick out a couple places where you can see this is evident, especially in the time of judgment and wrath that God was, was about to unleash on his own people. You had prophets that were speaking out against the sin of Israel and Judah, and yet you had the smooth talkers saying, oh no, God's not going to punish you. God is a loving God. He's, a, he's always promised to give you good things and, and, and make you feel good because you are God's chosen people. And notice in Jeremiah 5.31, they, we find out that they prophesied lies. The prophets are prophesying lies, Jehovah says, in my name. 
Uh, uh, again, you, you read in Jeremiah 14, 14, right? These were not only prophesying lies, but they were prophesying false visions, divinations, idolatries, and delusions. Then you have to go back and, and just see how these are, are impacting what true prophets of God are doing. And yet, you end up in a place like Jeremiah 23, verses 30 through 32, and you find out the sad reality of a false narrative, it benefits no one. You think about that man who was willing to throw away his whole marital, marital experience for just a few seconds of pleasure. And the force of destruction that that brought, not only upon that marriage, but upon the circles of people that surround that relationship. Like children, like in-laws or outlaws, however you want to take that. But the people who are, are hurt and destroyed over the falseness. Well, again, like I said, this isn't new. There's one, when I was reading this text, I said to myself, where do I go and find this origin? And, and in fact, this, this place in the Bible isn't even where that originated from. I know that there's some theologians that would allude to, to writings of Ezekiel and Isaiah about what happened in the cosmic world through um, uh, metaphors and analogies and figurative uh, language of kings of the world. But they allude to an angel called Lucifer. And so, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and, and you find out there in verses 1 through 6 that this serpent that was more crafty than, than any other in the field said to the woman in verse 2, in verse 1, did God actually say? And this is probably one of those smooth um, um, languages or, or liners, right, of falsehood. This, this, is, this, is, this is how you know that really you're on, on a slippery slope here. Especially when you're talking about sexual sins. But I, it makes me feel good. Well, of course it's going to make you feel dummy. It's going to make you feel good. Right? But is it the right thing to do? Oh, but I love the gambling. I love this. I love the cheating, the lying, the gossiping. It makes me feel good. And, and notice how the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree? That, that, that wasn't even what God had told. That wasn't even the mandate. It was, don't eat of this tree of knowledge. But, but notice how the craftiness, the, 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 the smooth talking, right? That the enemy, the deceiver is putting and employing here on this first created human beings. Did God really actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Speed it up to verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit. This, now, this is the woman, right, falling to this persuasion. Now, guys, I know that some people say, well, see, the woman was it because Paul said that the woman was the seafarers. We're talking about here 
deception. It could happen to both men, male and females. We could all be deceived. But notice, notice, after the enemy had planted this, this seed of doubt in her mind, right? And she says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Well, God didn't say touch it. He says, just don't eat of it. She's the one that started uh, unpacking this and starting to let the, the illusion. And that's what lies do. They not only justify it, but they keep adding to the justification of a sinful behavior. And so we see this, right, as early as the garden of, uh, of and then in verse 4, right, uh, the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. You can keep covering your sin. No one will find out. Oh, you could keep having this lustful affair in your mind because you're not touching anyone. You're not hurting anyone. So you read the Beatitudes and Jesus says, even if you lust in your mind after a woman, you're committing adultery. So again, all these things take us back and, and you have to ask. Now, Let's speed it up. Let's, let's leave the Old Testament and let's go into the New Testament. And so we find in the New Testament in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus encountering these very upset religious leaders. And these religious leaders were not only upset at Jesus, man. Their, their, their attitude was, this guy is really pissing us off. And, and, and not only was Jesus getting to them, they wanted and they were already devising how to put an end to Jesus. And so we read in, in John chapter 8, verse 44, and Jesus is, is responding to these, to these relig- religious, hardened, unbelieving. And in, in the 21st century, uh, for the younger people, you're going to understand, they were haters. They were hating on Jesus. They were haters. And so Jesus responds in this way. And he tells them in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. Man, nobody wants to be told that. But look, look who is he talking to here? He's not talking to the unconverted. He's talking to religious people who had religious truth, who had religious traditions, who had religious knowledge. Why would he call them children of the devil? And so listen to what he says. And you and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer. Describes the devil as a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What is it that's going on here? Well, I did a little study here just to help me uh, process a little bit more what Paul was possibly addressing and and what type of false teachings were going on. Now, again, I, I had mentioned to you, right? Nobody knows for sure. There's no scholar that can tell you this is exactly the heresy that was going on in Colossae. Nobody could say that. However, there are some very convincing theories 
that, that, that when you analyze a little bit of the geography and, 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 and the social, political uh, empire of the time, it gives you a little insight into what was going on and what could be possible uh, uh, um, heresies that were occurring in Colossae at that time. Right? One of them is you, you go to the, to, the, to the strongest one, right, was uh, Judaizers. Right? This was a common theme in, in, in biblical narrative, right? Hey, don't eat ham. Don't eat bacon. Man, I like ham and bacon. You know, you have to celebrate, you know, this ceremony and this ceremony and this ceremony. Dude, I, I don't know what that means to me. I'm a Mexican. We don't celebrate Hanukkah. You know, what, what does that mean? Tell me, explain, unpack it to me. Unpack it for me. And so this, this, this is, could it possibly be paganism? Well, Romans were very pagan. In fact, they adopted a lot of the philosophies, even though we, we later studied through history that some of the, the, the emperors chased and, 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 and persecuted some of the philosophers, uh, namely the Stoics of their time. Uh, but yet, it didn't keep them from, from adapt, adapting a lot of philosophies of that time and age. Um, so, so, again, what one would have to ask, was it that? How about they were in Southern Asia? How about the influence of um, uh, uh, Asian, um, uh, what is it, mysticism, uh, religions, or... Uh, 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 um, a blender, a syncretism, uh, a syncretic way uh, of, just, of just viewing life in general. And, and in fact, I have found that to be true even in today's 21st century world. I remember taking a course and in, in early on in my, in my, in my educational uh, uh, goals, right, and, 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 and studies, and, and all of a sudden we're all doing this platform and we're all chatting about, you know, what, what are the implications of Jesus' spiritual disciplines, right? And then somebody wrote in there in this forum that we were all talking about, yeah, well, Jesus was into meditation and, and Jesus was into, you know, like a, a yoga type of stuff, right? Very Mideast. Uh, uh, Asian or Middle Eastern and, and beyond type of thinking. And I'm thinking, dude, where do you find that in the Bible? Like, show it to me so that I could, I could, I, I could actually believe it. And, and no, it, it, it's, it's, again, there's this, this mixture, like a tossed salad of beliefs. And one of the ones that you find today in the 21st century is, is more from, from New Age into this so-called spiritual, lit, uh, spiritual enlightenment, right? And so they start adding and borrowing and, 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 and building this whole tossed solid, solid of approach to, to what the Bible says. And all of a sudden, you begin to, to track on. But here's, here's the name of one of those that was very present during the time, if you ask yourself, okay, where do you pull this up, right? So for example, um, let me see if I, if I pronounce this correctly because I have a bad habit of mispronunciation and I, and I am dyslectic, so you probably should have known that when you were doing your, your interviews of me, but I am. Okay, here, here we go. Here's my attempt, right? Epicureanism. Hope I said that right. Okay, um, 
Epicurus, who was he? What did he teach? What did he believe? Well, if you, again, we're not going to go into all of this. All we need to know is that 3rd, 4th century BC with the likes of, 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 um, of uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all of these things began to unfold and they began to unwind. And basically, um, Epicurus believed that you can learn from your senses. So, it's, you know, again, we're going to, for the sake of time, you know, uh, hey, it's all about, you know, experience. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's a no-brainer. There's a lot of things that we learn through experience, right? You gain experience, you get, uh, uh, you, you build up and you develop a, a sense. So, there's some good in that. But then when you begin to apply it and see its destructive, its destructive behavior and sensuality, then you begin to start with a, a good premise, but then you end up in a false conviction. And again, we see this because, again, we see Paul visiting Athens in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. And you find that as Paul, namely in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him. Paul didn't shy away from these people. Paul engaged them. You know, we shouldn't run away from our New Age friends. We shouldn't run away from our Mormon friends. We shouldn't run away from even those who are Jehovah's Witness. We should engage them. Oh, pastor, uh, next time they come, I'm going to invite you for some coffee so that you can talk to them. No, you talk to them. You engage them. You, 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 you have a conversation. And what are we going to talk about? Talk about the Bible. Well, they don't like to use my Bible. Well, then use theirs. There's nothing that's going to rock somebody like a Jehovah's Witness. Like, hey, can I borrow your Bible? It's like, no, no, dude, no, you have your Bible. No, let me use your Bible. And you can use your Bible and take them to Scripture, and they still won't understand. How do we explain it? And so Paul, he, he engaged, he conversed with them. And some said... Notice this. They call Paul a babbler. Paul was no babbler. Man. The guy was educated in law. And, and, and they said, what did this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Wow. Wow. Kind of sounds like when I have conversations. I mean, if you've ever, I, I, I remember early on in my, in my Christian walk, right? Uh, we, we, we wanted to go out and evangelize. And so here we are in East Los Angeles at the church where I was attending. And then I go walking into to, to, to this one house. And the guy literally picked the shovel and said, if you don't get out of my property now, I'm going to beat you so hard no one's going to recognize you. It's like... Do we stop preaching the gospel because it's unsafe? No. Now, I'm not telling you to go out there and be a martyr. But, but understand that in the presentation of the gospel, in our engagement with the world, yeah, it's not going to sit right with people. Some people will call you a babbler. 
Oh, there goes one of those fanatics. There goes those, those hallelujahs, right? These, so that was one of them. Um, again, you know, Epicurus, he, he was not primarily concerned with, with so much of these sensuals. But notice this. He was really after mental pleasures. So sensuality is, is, is one thing. But you know what? Would you ever imagine that there is some who seek sensuality of mind? I, I, I think uh, one, one author, when I was unpacking this text, said, you know what? What they were really wrestling with was intellectual idolatry. Intellectual idolatry. And so here Paul is just kind of, you know, wrestling. He doesn't get into all of this. He doesn't go, how about um, Stoism, right? Well, the Stoics, what were they all about? Well, you know what? They were, they were uh, somewhat similar, but they had more of a unified theory of the cosmos involving physics, logic, and ethics. And that's what they were known for. Right, and so you know, uh, they 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 again uh, from from its original founder, who the guy who was accredited that you know he thought the physical world that people could truly understand, and that they they must assent to or challenge the impressions of the world until they attain understanding. And so you can imagine, right, when Jesus comes into the picture and the Greeks and the Romans and, and all of these uh, types of philosophies that, that, that developed over, you know, centuries, right, before Jesus stepped into the picture, why people were looking for this logos, this enlightenment, as the Gnostics would have said, Right, and so you you see this, right? And then and then, how did all of this uh, philosophy and we already said it, right? It, it 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 permeated into the Roman society, and and so much that the elitist of Rome, the intellectual elitist, adopted a form of Stoicism, and and, and so they they borrowed a lot of their their philosophies, right? while they bragged on what we will call this syncretic approach to life. So that was mainly a little bit of that historical background uh, to it, right? There was a growing majority of Romans that adopted Stoism. And Paul had to address these things and a couple of things here, just very quickly here, in, in some of the contrast between Paul and these Stoics, right? Paul, he defined, right, reconciliation or the light of Christ and his redemptive and sanctifying aspect of God's work in Christ, which was entirely absent from Stoic teachings, Okay, mind you, these, these people had that, that love affair of mind and, and intellect and wisdom, right? That sensation of the mind that had been developing over. And I think to help us really come back to this text in, 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 Colossi, in Colossians is really to understand really the different points of views that believers and unbelievers share. The natural world, the Stoics, philosophies, whatever you want to call it, 
and Christianity or having this Christocentric view of life. And so you, you end up with these two worldviews. You end up the worldview and you, up, and you end up with a theo view of the world. And I think that's the difference there. Where these naturalists or Stoics were, were, were the, the result of human deductive uh, processes or disciplines or thoughts regarding the physical world. So everything was, was, was reduced and foundational on man. The theo worldview is a general revelation, God's initiative revealing himself through his physical creation and his ultimate revelation in Christ. And that's what, what Paul was driving at here. Here's the contrast. And so we see that. So again, false teachers, how do they appear? Where do they come up with? Well, it's kind of hard because we can naturally think of Pharisees and Sadducees and, 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 and scribes, right? But notice even in Paul's ministries who he called out as false teachers. For example, 2 Timothy 4.10, we find out of a person called Demas who loved, who was in love with the present world. Well, we, 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 in 2 Timothy 1.15, we read of um, Phygelus uh, and Hermogenes, right? Um, again, two guys who turned away from him and who are among the false teachers. How about um, Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.19 through 20, right? What did they do? They shipwrecked their faith. That's how Paul described them. Here's another one um, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.17, right? They, their smooth talk spreads like gangrene. Have you ever noticed that lies always, always run faster than truth? Right? But, but notice this. Their talk was spread like gangrene. And, and again, he names um, Hymenius and uh, Philetus. I hope I said that right. Well, you'll forgive me. if well, you have the biblical text there. 2 Timothy 2.17. Okay. So that's the first part of what I needed to say. Here's the second part. The second thing is, not only are, do false teachers use deception and smooth talking, right? Or polished language. But notice the second thing here that we draw from, from the, and we take it out of verse 8. Do not be kidnapped or carried off by false teachers. Now, again, it's very interesting because notice how the text starts in verse 8. See to it. My friends, that's an imperative. This is no longer a prayer. This is no longer a, descriptive, a description. This is prescription. See to it. Be aware of it. Um, take care of it. Pay attention to it. Be on guard. Implying that in some future, there's dangers that you need to appropriately be prepared for. Okay? And then the, the second thing there is, so you start off with that imperative. See to it that no one takes you captive. Okay? Again, original language, this implies either being carried away or being kidnapped. 
That's the implications of this word captive here. And so this verb, which is present and active, it's a participle, it's singular, it's nominative, it's masculine. In this verse, it refers to being carried away from the truth into the slavery of error. Imagine that. You're being kidnapped from truth and you're being carried away into slavery of error. Now, what does this really um, get down to? Well, you keep reading and he starts describing at least four things here that are very important. Notice, philosophy and empty deceits. But notice twice how Paul uses the word according, right? According to, the, to human tradition, that's another one, comma, according to the elemental spirits of the world, comma, and then he adds an and, and the importance here, not according to Christ. So if you just slow down the pace a little bit on this text, Notice how philosophy and empty deceit are separated by the word and, right? According, comma, according to human tradition. So that's another key word one has to ask. What is human tradition? What are the traditions that people like, that make, that sometimes even divides churches over? What are those traditions? And, and he would even suggest their philosophies, and their empty deceits, empty words. They're worthless to human tradition. And then notice this. He puts a comma again, according to the elemental spirits of the world. What does that mean, elemental spirits of the world? There's a lot of books written on this whole conversation here. But I think the taker of all this all is at the end of this text, and not according to Christ. What is Paul suggesting here? Well, let me unpack it for you this way. Um, early on, we all, and some of you who have had the privilege of just diving into the scripture, know that there was some heresy that, that, had, that had occurred in, in Galatia, right? And, and so, uh, what was that heresy about? Well, the traditions of Judaism spilling over into Christianity, and what does this freedom in Christ really imply? Right? And so, who was involved in all this heresy? Well, let me tell you, there were some good, dear brothers that were falling uh, 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 entrapped in, in to this heresy. One of them was Barnabas. What? Good old Barney? Yeah. He was, he was like there between it and what was going on. And, and Paul, even in, in Galatians, calls out Peter. Hey, man, you're such a fake dude. I mean, this is a guy who had been filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, preaching to thousands and people coming. He was a leader of the church. And Paul called him out and said, dude, you're such a hypocrite. Like, what was going on? And again, I think some of that helps us inform what Paul is really telling the church in Colossae. Traditions. Practices. Things that we have that are not according to Christ must be viewed in lens of who Christ is, or a synonym here, the gospel. 
the gospel must inform our worldview. And this is what he says. And so, again, in Galatians 4, 3, you read, these are those elemental principles. Why? Because they enslave, they entrap, they kidnap, they take captive. Or in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, we see that the wisdom given in Christ, right, to Paul, but at the end of that verse, he says, there are some things that even were so difficult for Paul to understand that the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction and they do to the other scriptures. So what do false teachers do? They twist. They deceive. They put up smoke screens to something that feels so real but is so fake. Okay. So how... Finally, so how do we, how do we avoid, or how do we preserve ourselves from false teachers? Because there are. And, and, and again, you know, um, there's, we, can, we can stand here and name all kinds of preachers that we hear on the radio, TV, have books, have mega churches, and, you know, large, small, whatever it is. But how do we avoid false teachers altogether? Well, I think, you know, there, there, there's, there's a few participles here that Paul included in the, in the letter to help us really drive this point. For example, um, go with me to verses 5 all the way through, through 7, and look what he says. For though I'm absent, obviously Paul wasn't there, okay? So he was absent. But, but listen, he says, yet I am with you in spirit, right? When I'm not here at church, even though I'm not here, I'm with you in spirit. I'm praying for you. Praying that whoever's teaching the word of God is teaching it faithfully to you. But look what verse 6 tells us. Therefore, as you received. That, that is a, a very important word there. Circle that one in your notes. Therefore, have you, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord. And notice something else. It's very interesting in, in, in literary analysis of the text. Notice how Paul uses the whole complete titles of Christ here. Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Again, we're talking about the supremacy of Christ, his lordship. My question to us, Clovis E.V. Free, is if we say that in all things Christ is supreme, then he has to be supreme over our traditions, convictions, and behaviors, not just individually, but as a church. And this is hard. Oh, pastor, we love our old ways. Our old ways served a time and a purpose. The gospel doesn't change. The methods do. And so this is, this is where, where Paul said. So therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, and notice this, this phenomenal principle verb here, walk. <laughs> so, so again, Christianity isn't a, a, a stagnant religion. It's not a, an invitation to just, okay, now I'm redeemed. I'm regenerated. Now I could sit on my blessed assurance and ride my way to heaven. That's not Christianity. Christianity 
is one who, hey, you've been redeemed, you've been saved, you've been born again, but now you must walk. Hey, Moses was about 120 years old and he was still moving. Caleb was 85 years old when he came to Joshua and said, hey, Joshua, I've served you all these years. Now let me go to conquer my land that was promised to me. Even Simeon, who we read last, last week, he was an old person, yet seeing the fulfillment of the Lord before him. So Paul here is really helping us remain firm to the faith. Now, now again, um, again, sometimes, and I run into this temptation, also in the, depending on the circles that I'm talking Sometimes it's so easy to get lost in the mysteries of the Word of God that we lose sight of what's important, what's most important. Kind of like the disciples, remember? Jesus said, hey, all of y'all, go out. Here, I give you power to go heal the sick and cast out demons. And what did they do? They came back to Jesus. Oh, yeah, Lord, this is fun. This is awesome. Yeah, I healed this person. They were healed. I, I casted out this demon. And what did Jesus respond to them? Don't be happy about that. Be happy that your names are recorded in heaven. You see, it's so easy to talk, get lost about the eschatology, the gifts, and all that. And those are important. There's context for that. To dive deep into the theology. But if my theology does not move me to walk, it's useless information. That's, what it, that's, that's really what it's saying. If you don't believe me, you got to re- reevaluate what happened to the church in Ephesus in, in Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses. We're going to take a dive into that in the fall. So don't jump too far ahead. But what happened? They lost their first love. And so Paul here is really telling them, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. But notice these descriptors that Paul adds in here, right? I picked out four. You might pick out some more. But here's the four that I picked out. Rooted, built, and notice, again, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So, so here, here's some, some foundational things that you could take in your life. Am I rooted in Christ? Am I built up in, 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 in Christ, in, in the holiest of faith? Am I more passionate about Jesus and his power and his lordship over everything? Or about that I'm a premillennial list? Or that I'm an amillennialist? Or that I'm a Calvinist? Or I'm an Armenian? I'll tell you, if that's your passion, we better revisit your faith. There's something more that we need to look at that's grounded and rooted and built up. It doesn't say in your theology. It says in him, in Christ. And again, not only that, it says and established in faith. Now, the implications of being established in faith is all on the work of Christ and his person. But then how do we keep strengthening that? 
Huh? And here, here's a kicker. Here's a kicker. If church for me is about a place of do's and don't do's, my good friend uh, Ron, most of you guys know him, my good friend Ron, uses this powerful illustration. You, you're probably, you've probably been the recipient of Ron's illustration if you've gotten to know him very good. But th- this is the classical example of what happens to us when we don't abound in thanksgiving. The life of the believer, you know what? Hey, you, you, you're not doing things right, but you know what? I'm grateful for you. Huh, what does that mean? You know what? That pastor, he, he yells too much, but I'm grateful for him. He doesn't dress as well, doesn't look with, doesn't wear a suit and tie all the time, but he's all right. I'm grateful for him. Those are the little things. How about when the wife blows it? Are you grateful for her? When things don't go well in life, are you grateful for even life itself? And it's so easy that, that these things are so lacking from our life that we've, as, as Ron would say, we, we've picked up a red pen and we start highlighting all the, negative, all the negative things in life and around us and of others that we become so critical. And here, Paul is saying, just as you received, so walk. Received, walk. Received, walk. Being rooted. Built. Rooted is the, the organic, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, illusion here of plant. Being rooted, but then being built. Oh, this is my love language when I read this. It's like construction, right? You're, you're digging out the footing. You're leveling. You're, you're building a sure foundation, That's what he's saying here. Be built in sure truth, in foundational truth, established in the faith. What faith? The one that you received in Christ. Just as you were taught. What were we taught? We haven't haven't taken the, the, the class on eschatology yet. No, but you were taught Christ. Christ is your guarantee for any eschatological fulfillment. I had a teacher that said, everything pans out, dude. (laughs) <laughs> you have Jesus, Kawabanga, man, let's go surfing. Everything pans out in the end, right? Again, sometimes we complicate it, but then again, so how do we stay? Well, th- those four examples, right? He is the Lord. He, cre- he is the Lord of the created and order, the visible, the invisible, over, over, over principalities and rulers, Lord over the church and redemption. He is the Lord of it all. And again, we end up with this, right? In 1 Corinthians uh, 3.9, Paul would address the church in Corinth. The church was, 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 was plagued with sin, with all kinds of garbage. But he says, we are God's fellow workers. So here, he, he's making a defense of, of, of ministry, right? But look, look how he addresses the people. You are God's field. You are God's building. What is the church? We are God's building, not this physical building. May we never idolize the building or the property. It has its place, my friends. Don't, I'm not saying that. But we, may we never forget what is the church. The church is not dead. It's alive. The spirit is moving. 
He's transforming lives. Uh, Ephesians 3.17, he'll go back and say, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. You know, I love that passage there because he gives this quad-dimensional uh, understanding of God's love, the depths, the heights, the 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 wideness of it, right? And and then and then the length of it. So again, you can read that that being built up. Again, he goes back to this in Colossians one twenty three. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. Pause. In the 21st century, even in countries like, North, uh, like China or North Korea, the gospel is expanding regardless of what men do and governments say. The gospel is expanding even in places like Iran. And so, as we consider what Paul is saying to us here, beware of these false teachers I, I couldn't help but ending up in a portion of the scripture that really just, I, I always go back to it because nobody knows who wrote it. But it's there. And it's part of the biblical canon that we consider as inspired and sacred word of God. The writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews thirteen nine, do not be led away. Do not be led away by diverse, diverse and strange teachings. But notice, you know, I, I thought, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that, I get that, I get that. Yeah, there's, there's good, good, good warning there. But notice it, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. I don't want to sound like a reductionist of the Bible, but you know what? Jesus actually went very boldly when he, when he gave us the great commandment. He says, when you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and you love others as, as yourself, and, and obviously with that theological umbrella there of God being at the center of that love, as First John would tell us, you, don't, you didn't love God first. He, he loved you. So how are, and then Jesus said the, the most radical things that baffles theologians and, and, and biblical scholars, right? He says, if you do these, things, these two things, sum up all the prophets and the law. <laughs> I'll give you a million dollars if you could unpack that text. Here's what I think. I think the heart is strengthened in grace. Sometimes we want to be sticklers to the letter of the law. But you know what rattles our theology most? The spirit of the law. Because when that lady, whether you believe that the first eight verses of John chapter 8 were part of the original manuscripts there, or some church father added that story in there, whatever your take is on that, here's what we do know. The lesson taught in that story is yeah, the letter of the law said that lady needed to be stoned. That's the letter of the law. 
but the spirit of the law? <laughs> Jesus said, the first one without any sin, cast the first stone. That rattled theology there. That rattles theology even to today. But here's what I will say. Grace strengthens the heart. And just as we receive Christ, we must walk in Christ. Lord, help us. Help us to walk in you. Help us to desire you more. Help us not to idolize the cognitive dimension, the intellectual pleasures. Yes, your word is truth. It's written for a reason. It makes us wise. It instructs us. It informs us. It rebukes us. It trains us up in all godliness. We cannot discard that. Perhaps best is how John described you your person and ministry, when he said, you were full of grace and truth. And so, Father, help us. Help us in our marriages. Help us with our children. Help us with our finances. Help us with our passion and our commitment to the local expression of believers who have been called out. Help us, Lord, to be that people who are full of grace and truth. That Christ, whom we have received, would be our standard, the gospel standard, the gospel of truth, the gospel of life, the gospel that transforms, that pierces into the most profound part of human existence and calls men, whatever their background is, into a life-giving relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For your glory, honor. If someone here, Lord, in, in online or in here, Father, has been processing this, may you help them. May they confess you as Lord and Savior. And secondly, may they too be rooted, built, established, and also abound in thanksgiving for your good works. All of this we pray in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.